Well, good evening, everyone. It's good to see you. Thank you for coming out. It's been a long day for some of you, but um, uh, this is the final meeting of the day. Would you like to turn, please, to the Gospel of John, chapter 4? The Gospel of John, chapter 4. Uh, Gospel of John, chapter 4, and verse 4. And he must needs go through Samaria. It's a short reading, so we read it again. Verse 4, chapter 4, and he must needs go through Samaria. And I'm sure the Lord will bless to our hearts the reading this evening. Of course, when you come to John chapter 4, there are two alternatives. Number one is to read the whole chapter, or number two is to pick out one verse and read it, and that's what I've chosen to do for the sake of time. This is a well-known story, the woman of Samaria, and I want to share it with you tonight, perhaps in a little different way, and uh, hope that through it we all might learn and that we all might be helped, particularly in our testimony and in our speaking to other people about the Lord Jesus Christ. And we shall see in this story precisely how the best and greatest preacher that ever lived approached this particular subject. So we'll start at verse 1, and as my wont is to go down the chapter, if not verse by verse, at least section by section on this occasion. In chapter 4, verse 1, we are told that the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, when therefore the Lord knew. Now, in John's gospel, the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ is one of the big themes. It occurs again and again. For example, he needed not that any man should tell him, for he himself knew what he would do. And throughout the gospel, this idea of what he knew comes forward time and time again. And here it is that the Lord knew. The Lord knew something. Now, what did he know? He knew that the Pharisees had heard. So what had the Pharisees heard? The Pharisees heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John. So you would see that perhaps there was springing up between the disciples of Jesus Christ and the disciples of John the Baptist, a little spirit of competitiveness. Now, I don't know who started this rumor. I'm sure it was not the Lord Jesus. I am sure it was not John the Baptist. It might have been some of their followers, however, who started saying these things. So there was a rumor going round, and it was turning into a spirit of competitiveness between disciples, and the message was that Jesus had baptized more disciples than John. And then, of course, if you look at verse 2, you see a statement that should have put an end to all that speculation anyway, though Jesus himself 
didn't baptize anyone, but his disciples did. But we know what the, um, what the, the message sort of was. And one wonders who was keeping the score, who was counting all these baptisms. And uh, we read in verse 3, the Lord's response to a spirit of competitiveness amongst his people. Verse 3 says, he left Judea, Judea and departed into Galilee. He left Judea. I think that suggests to us a mode of action. When we come across between the Lord's people or between the Lord's assemblies, a spirit of competitiveness. And what is the right action to take in that? To join in, to shout louder than the other side, to make greater, as it were, statements about the one's own side. No, I think the best thing here as suggested in this verse, in these verses, is to walk away from it. There is no spiritual benefit to be gained in a spirit of competitiveness with other believers. You might say, does such a thing happen? Well, it does. Sometimes there is competitiveness between ordinary believers. Sometimes there is competitiveness between assemblies, between churches. And sometimes there is competitiveness even between preachers and Bible teachers. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. And therefore, it is best in any circumstance where this might occur to walk away from it, as the Lord Jesus Christ here did. So that little bit of background introduces us to the passage, to the verse that we read, verse 4, and he must needs go through Samaria. Now, where was he leaving? He was leaving Judea. Where was he going? He was going into Galilee. And you will know from your geography that Judea is in the south, Samaria is the section a little bit above that, and Galilee is the one to the north of that. So the Lord Jesus Christ was going to go from Judea to Galilee. And our verse says that he must go through Samaria. Now, Orthodox Jews, if they were traveling from Judea to Galilee, they would not go through Samaria. Thank you very much. And why not? Because they hated the Samaritans, and the Samaritans despised them. So to go through Samaria would be, in a sense, almost a pollution to them. And if they dared to go through Samaria, they might get not only a very lukewarm welcome, but they may be chased out of town at the same time. But here our verse says that he must. Well, he didn't, one didn't have to must. Because Orthodox Jews are making that same journey, would have, instead of doing the sensible thing and traveling north, they would have traveled east. They would have crossed the river. Then they would have gone north. And when they reckoned they were sufficiently far north to have avoided Samaria, they'd turn west again and cross over into Galilee. On the other hand, the more adventurous might instead of heading east, head west and go down to the seaside, catch shipping, sail up past Samaria, and disembark at a spot where they could easily access Galilee without having gone through Samaria. 
But here now our verse tells us that he, that is the Lord Jesus, must go through Samaria. And of course that raises the question, why must he go through Samaria? And the reason that he must go through Samaria was it was divine purpose that he should meet one woman and speak to her about himself and about the gospel and point her or bring her to himself. Now, we know that the message of the gospel is a worldwide message. We remember what the Lord said to Nicodemus in the previous chapter. For God so loved the world, the world, the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The gospel message that you and I have is a message that the world needs to hear and the world needs to believe. We are thankful to God for men and women in the present and in the past who have read that verse and have been fired up by the possibility of taking the gospel to the world. And they have gone out and they have done that. They have traveled north, east, south, and west to spread the gospel message with tremendous effect throughout various countries of the world. But I wonder what you think whenever you hear that the world needs the message of the gospel. I know what I think. I think that's not me. I couldn't do that. Imagine being involved in trying to reach the world. I could never do that. Well, thank God, God can do without people like me and spread his message around the world. But there is an alternative. Here, God was designing the fact that his son should meet privately with one woman. And while you and I might run scared of going out into all the world, surely we can follow this other option and speak to one person about, the, about Jesus Christ and the message of the gospel. A hymn writer penned a hymn, and part of it was this. Lord, lay one soul upon my heart, and love that soul through me, and may I nobly play my part to win that soul for thee. One. I want to present you with a little challenge. Here we are all here, sat here now this, this evening, uh, not quite asleep, but uh, some of us nearly there, perhaps, or some of you nearly there, not me. But um, I want you to think for a moment about the name of one person that you know who today is not a Christian, but you would like to see them become a Christian, let's say, within the next year. So who might that be? Don't tell me the name because it wouldn't mean anything to me, but you know it, don't you? Can you think of one person that you, would like to be, that you would like to see saved and that you would like to lead to the Lord Jesus in the next year? If you can't think of anybody, pray this prayer. Lord, lay one soul upon my heart and love that soul through me and may I nobly play my part to win that soul for thee. So you've got the name.
how are we going to do it? How did he do it? Verse 5. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, he and the twelve had entered Samaria, and they're now coming towards the heart of Samaria, and they arrive at this place called Sychar's Well. And uh, we read in, uh, in um, verse 6, now Jacob's well was there. Now, Sychar is also called Shechem. It's the same place. And Shechem, or Sychar, was a very historically important place because there at Sychar, or at Shechem, Joshua made one at least or maybe two of his farewell speeches to the nation of Israel. He delivered his farewell address at Shechem. Furthermore, it was at Shechem where Joseph's bones were buried. Do you remember that when Joseph was dying, he said to the leaders of his family, he said, God will take you out of this place. And when you go, he said, take my bones with you. He was a bit like us waiting for the coming of the Lord. He was positive the promise of deliverance from Egypt would be fulfilled, but he reckoned it wouldn't be filled for a little while. So he didn't say, take my body with you. He said, take my bones with you. And for 40 years, the bones of Joseph rattled round in a box on the back of a camel walking through the wilderness. And after 40 years, they buried the bones of Joseph at Shechem. So Joshua's farewell speech was there. Joseph's bones were there. And of course, here we read that Jacob's well was there. But even better than all any of these, or indeed all of those three things, Jesus' revelation was there. So if you like alliteration, you've got your alliteration, haven't you? Joshua, Jacob, Jesus, and the other one that I've forgotten has gone out of my mind. I'm suffering jet lag now. But there you have it. So uh, he cometh to this city of Sychar, city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus in the well, and it was about the sixth hour. So, Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey. It is the purpose of John in his writings to declare the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he was the Son of God. And yet here, he introduces us to and gives us a little glimpse of the Lord's humanity. I think that's a lovely little phrase, don't you, a turn of phrase? And Jesus, the man, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, wearied with his journey, not only was he the son of God, but he was a real man and endured some of the things that real humanity endures, like on this occasion, being wearied with his journey. And says the King James Version, he sat thus on the well. Thus? It means he sat just like that. 
Just like what? Just like a man who was exhausted from having traveled all day. He sat just like that on the well. And it was about the sixth hour. So I ask you, what time do you think it was? Well, gospel preachers in using this passage would normally say that it was noon. That the woman in coming to the well came at noon because she knew that nobody else would be there at noon because it wasn't a reasonable thing to do at the midday sun to walk all the way out to the well, fill up with water and walk all the way back again. Do you think that's right? Let me suggest to you that it may not be right. In fact, let me tell you that it is not right. So what then is right? The Gospel of John was written something like 40 to 50 years after the other three Gospels. And by the time it was written, the influence of Rome was more heavily apparent in the country than it had been before. Hence, Matthew, Mark, and Luke refer to a certain body of water as the Sea of Galilee. John refers to the same body of water as the Sea of Tiberias. You see the Roman influence? And I will go further and say this to you, that all the times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke are Jewish times. And the time that John speaks about in his gospel is Roman time. You say, I'll check that up when I go home to see what John says about the time of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Well, save yourself the bother because John says nothing about the time that Jesus Christ was crucified. So it was the sixth hour. So it was six o'clock, not 12. So the next time you hear somebody stand on this platform and tell you it was noon, say nothing. Keep stum. Just think that you know better. So it was six o'clock. Now you say, well, clever Mr. Roy Hill, if it was 6 o'clock, was it 6 a.m. or 6 p.m.? I would say to you that it was 6 p.m. How come? Because they would have been traveling all day. They would not have been traveling all night. Had they been traveling all night, it might well be 6 a.m., but they would have been traveling all day. It was not safe to travel, particularly in Samaria, at nighttime. So they traveled during the day. And here, at six o'clock in the evening, we are told the Lord Jesus Christ sat on the well. Well, <laughs> well, he says. And um, verse number seven, there cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, give me to drink. Now, this woman of Samaria shows up, and she'll tell us a little bit more. We'll discover a little bit more about her as we go through. But 6 p.m., she shows up to draw water. And Jesus speaks to her. Now, when he spoke to her, um, she was horrified, really. Because 
it was not the place, particularly of a Jewish man, to speak to a Samaritan woman. You see, the Orthodox Jews were a bit like the Orthodox brethren. They'd hardly even speak to their own wife, never mind anybody else's. <laughs> so here, here now, he says, we are told, John says, Jesus saith unto her, give me to drink. Now, let's just get down to this suggestion for a moment or two. One of the most difficult things to do, we're back to this person that you're thinking about. You haven't forgotten the name already, have you? Um, one of the most difficult things to do is to get started talking to them about the Lord. Yeah, if you're going to talk to them about the hockey, you know how to start. If you're going to talk to them about the football, you know where to start. If you're going to talk to them about the weather, you know where to start. But talk to them about, talk to them about the Lord, it is not so easy to find a place to start, is it? How did he do it? He said to her, could you give me a drink? He didn't say to her, look, I'm the Messiah. I can uh, jolly well help you with whatever it is you want to do. Trust me. Or as you might start, by saying, would you like to come along to the chapel on Sunday morning? Not a great start. It works sometimes, but mostly it wouldn't, you see. But how did he start the conversation about himself? By asking her if she could help him. Interesting, isn't it? So where do you think you might start now in speaking to your friend? Let me give you an idea. Supposing that your friend is, I don't know if anybody does it in the United States of America, but a, a, a sort of hobby that a lot of men have back home in the UK is they keep racing pigeons. Now, supposing this fellow that I want to talk to keeps racing pigeons, right? Now, instead of going up to him and saying, hi, would you like to come to the gospel on Sunday? Or you're a sinner on the way to hell and you need to be saved? Maybe it'd be a good thing if I went up to him and said, you know, I'm very interested in your racing pigeons. How many have you got? Uh, have you won any races recently? How is it that wherever you let them loose in the country, they could come back again? Now, he'll talk to you. He'll tell you about the history of racing pigeons, about how many he's got, and everything else that you want or don't want to know about racing pigeons. You have excited his interest. You are listening to him. And that will, in due course, make it a lot easier for you to talk to him about your interest. Give me to drink, said the Lord Jesus. What a wonderful starting point. But this woman was clever. Let me show you how. Just notice verse 8. We'll avoid it for a moment or two. You'll find that in your Bible, it's very likely in parenthesis. For his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat. So we just leave, park that there for a moment or two. Then the woman of Samaria, verse 9, says unto him. Now look at what she says. She says, how is it that you, a Jew are asking drink of me, which I'm a woman of Samaria. And then I don't know whether she says this or whether John puts it in for um, information, for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. So immediately she's suspicious. She says, you're a Jew. How did she know that? 
Did he look like a Jew? Did he dress like a Jew? Was his accent like a Jew? Could be any one of those, or all three. But she said, you're a Jew. And the idea behind that is, you're a Jew and I don't like you. What are you doing here? What are, why on earth are you in our, our, our part of the world here? You're a Jew. You are a Jew. How is it that you, a Jew, are asking drink of me, which I'm a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Is that right? That the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans? You say, well, it's in the Bible, so it must be right. But it's not right. How do you know? Verse 8. For his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat. Who would they buy it from? Samaritans. So the Jews do have dealings with Samaritans, at least when it suits them. In fact, some ungenerous folks would say that the Jews will have dealings with anybody if there's a prophet in it. And so here, the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans must mean something else. What does it mean? Let me make this suggestion to you. The woman noticed, and she tells us later, she noticed that he had no vessel with which to draw water. She knew, and we'll speak about it in a minute, that the well was deep. And so she reckons. He asked her for a drink, so the only way he could have a drink, or she could give him a drink, was if he used her vessel. Now, the Jews were very particular about the vessels that they used for drinking from or the plates that they used for eating from. They had to be physically clean and they had to be ceremonially clean as well, otherwise they wouldn't use them. Now, let me give you an alternative paraphrased um, version of the last phrase of verse 9, for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. This is what she says. How is it that thou, being a Jew, ask a drink of, askest a drink of me, which I'm a woman of Samaria, for the Jews do not share drinking vessels with Samaritans? That's true. That the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans is not true. Jesus answered and said unto her, if thou knewest the gift of God, which he didn't, and who it is that saith unto me, unto thee, give me to drink, which he didn't, you would have asked of him, which he didn't, and he would have given you living water, which he didn't, at least not yet. So, you know what he meant when he said that, don't you? It's simple, it's straightforward. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that saith to thee, give me to drink, thou wouldst have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. Okay, if it's as simple as that, what did he mean when he spoke about living water? Oh, you say, well, <clears throat> well, <clears throat> of course, he was speaking about the Holy Spirit. Was he? I reckon this woman didn't even perhaps know there was a Holy Spirit. Or you might say, well, he was talking about the cleansing effect of the word of God. Was he? What 
what he said was one thing and what the woman heard was another thing. Now, what's in her mind? Look, well, she tells us. It, 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 I like this chapter because everything every verse explains the preceding one. What does she say? Verse 11, the woman saith unto him, Sir, now pause a minute. What was the first thing she said to him? You're a Jew. Don't like you. What should I say now? Sir. A little bit of respect creeping in here now. Sir, she said. Thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Two things that are in her mind. He had no vessel to put into the well to get the water. And secondly, the well was deep. In fact, historians would tell us the well was probably 150 feet deep when it was first dug by Jacob. So this is what she's thinking. At the top of this well, the water is still. It's not moving. 150 feet down, there was a spring which fed the well. The water was moving. It was living. The living water was 150 feet down. The water that they normally drunk was at the top, still not moving. So she thinks he's promising her living water from the bottom of the well. You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep, she said. You see the reasoning? So she says, from whence then hast thou this living water? 150 feet deep, no bucket. How can you do it? Can't be done, she might have said with a smile on her face. Furthermore, she says, Art thou greater than our father David, which our father Jacob, which gave us this well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? She said, Jacob and his children and his cattle all drunk the water at the top of the well. Are you greater than Jacob because you can get the water from the bottom of the well? Now, just a couple of things so that we don't uh, forget this person we're trying to remember and we'd like to see saved during the next 12 months. Um, Sometimes, you know, we talk a different language than uh, these people understand. The Lord was speaking something different here. This woman didn't understand what he was talking about. She had her own ideas. He said one thing, which to us seems to be quite clear, but to her was just a fog of mystery, really. So you need to be careful when you're talking to your friend that um, you talk in language that they understand. Don't get too spiritually minded as to be no earthly use. And not only that, but she was saying to him, are you greater than Jacob? Now, of course, he could have said to her, now listen, my dear, I'd like to explain to you that I am greater than Jacob. In fact, let me tell you also that I am greater than Moses, I am greater than Abraham, I am greater than Isaac, I am greater than Solomon, I am greater than David or anybody else you can think of, and put them all together and I am greater. Now that's true, isn't it? He is. But that would have been inappropriate and unhelpful and would have taken them down a line of argument that would have been difficult to get out of again. So he just ignores the question. And sometimes your friend might ask you difficult questions that you do actually maybe you don't even know the answer to. 
Well, just leave it. Ignore it. Be like a politician and answer a different question. And um, as far as this woman was concerned, the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, does answer the question in verse 13. See, if your friend asks you, what about all the poor people in Africa who have never heard the gospel? What's going to happen to them? <laughs> you don't know what's going to happen to them. So best to say nothing, isn't it? Unless you can present an argument like from Romans 1 that makes it absolutely clear that people like that have the evidence of their own body have the evidence of the fact that they have a spirit as well as a soul and body and have the evidence of creation so that they are rendered without excuse. But that's probably too much for anybody to take in who doesn't yet know the Lord. So, verse 13, Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him here it is, a well of water springing up. You see the living aspect of that? A well of water springing up into everlasting life. Well, that was a beautiful message. A lovely thing to say, that, wasn't it? So that's what he said. What did the woman hear? Well, again, the woman heard something different. She interprets this like this. She says to him, verse number 15, the woman saith unto him, Sir, it's twice she called him, sir. Sir, she said, give me this water. Why? So that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Now, this was a clever woman. She said, I don't know how he's going to do it, but he's telling me that if he gives me this living water, I'll never thirst again. And I'll not have to come back to this wretched well every day. Give me this water, she said. So, how does the Lord respond to that? Well, look at what he says. Go, call thy husband, and come hither. Verse 16. But what's this what on earth has this to do with her husband? Surely salvation is an individual matter. Go call thy husband and come hither, he says. You see, the Lord was introducing this now to bring her to repentance. What was her sin? Her sin distinctly was not that she had five husbands. That was not a sin. It was unusual, but it was not sinful. Unless, of course, she had, for some reason, divorced them all. But uh, the woman looks at him. Uh, let me remind you of this first in case I forget. Some people think becoming a believer, becoming a Christian, is a great idea. And what they would like to do is to take what's on offer in salvation and add it on to their existing life. But let me say this, that God's salvation is not something that you can add on to your existing life. It replaces your existing life. It's not a modular thing. It is a complete new thing in your life. 
and there is an essential associated with God's salvation, which the scripture refers to like this, repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So if it was not a sin for this woman to have five husbands, or perhaps not a sin for this woman to have five, five husbands, what's the problem? Why is he calling her to repentance when there's nothing to repent of? Well, look at what he says. Look at the woman's answer, verse 17. First of all, the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Now, I told you this was a clever woman. This woman would have made a great president of the United States of America <laughs> because she told the truth, but she handled it economically. I have no husband. She didn't. She didn't have a husband. She was right. In fact, the Lord Jesus looked at her with some, I think, amusement, yet admiration. And he said, you know what? That was a great answer. Because I know, he says, that you've had five husbands. And you're now being husbanded by somebody who is not your husband. In other words, she was living in sin. That was the thing that he was nailing. That was wrong. Was then, is now. And so he points to her sin and challenges her about it. Well said. Good answer. Thou hast had five husbands. I know all about that. And yet he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. I know all about that too. But he did it ever so gently, didn't he really? You must be careful in accusing your friend of being a sinner. You've got to handle it right, appropriately, gently, kindly. And so what does he say here now? The woman uh, says to him, I, I should say that um, it it's interesting to wonder what happened to the five husbands, isn't it? I mean, what happened? Did they all die? Well, I tell you, number six isn't taking any chances because he's not going to marry her, is he? <laughs> and so... The woman says unto him, verse 19, Sir, she said, and I, there's a, Sir, Sir, three times, Sir. Sir, she said, verse 19, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, that was a big deal. This woman believed that the last prophet to live was Moses. Prophets major or prophets minor meant nothing to her. Samaritans were involved with the first five books of the Old Testament, and that was it. She says, Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. You're a Jew. Sir, you're a prophet. Jesus, oh, the woman also then goes on and says to him, verse 20, our fathers worshipped in this mountain. That's the Samaritans worshipped on Mount Gerizim. But you say that Jerusalem not Mount Gerizim, is the place where men ought to worship. You see, she's getting involved now in other things. A bit like your friend saying, well, interesting stuff you're telling me, but I don't believe it. You go your way, and I'll go mine. And it'll all be all right in the night. <laughs> That's a bit of a put down, isn't it? The Lord does reply a little bit to that, but we don't have time to look at it just now. 
I want to draw your attention to verse number 25. The woman is saying, <clears throat> in verse number 25, the woman says unto him, I know that when the Messiah comes, which is called Christ, when he has come, he will tell us all things, she said. A lovely announcement to make. And, uh, you know, very much, well, on your bike, off you go. Carry on. I'll wait for the Messiah to come. Thank you very much. And when he comes, he'll tell us everything. You know, sometimes when there's a, an interesting conversation going on between two people, you say to yourself, if only I had been a fly on the wall, I'd love to have been there to have heard that. Well, I'd love to have been a fly on the well to have heard this and to seen this woman because look at what he said. She said, oh, well, Messiah, we leave it to the Messiah. He, he knows everything. He'll tell us everything. Verse 26, Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. I'm sure her jaw must have dropped. Now, time is virtually gone, but I want to uh, hurry to the finish of this little story. At verse 27, his disciples came, and they were shocked that he was talking to the woman. Of course, they would come just at that time, wouldn't they, and interrupt everything. Verse 28, the woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city. Why did she leave her water pot? Maybe because... She remembered that the 12 of them, or the 13 of them, didn't have one water pot between them. So she left hers. Maybe in the excitement of all that was happening, she simply forgot it. Maybe she had already tasted of the living water and reckoned she didn't need it anymore. Who knows? She went into the city. Now look, I like, I like this little section. She went into the city and she said to the men, verse 28, she said to the men. Now, if the Lord Jesus and his 12 disciples had decided to have an open-air service in the middle of Shechem, they'd have been run out of town. This woman held the key to the salvation of hundreds of people in Shechem. She held the key. She went, and she didn't gather together the ladies and say, now, ladies, something interesting to tell. She said to the men, this woman knew how to handle men. She had lots of experience. She said to the men, now look at what she says. Verse number 29, come, she said, see a man. Now you can imagine those fellows all say, what, another one? Come see a man, she says, that told me all that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? I can imagine them saying, he told you all that you've Everything that you did, everything, she said. He told me he knows all about me. He knows everything. Come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ, the Messiah, a Jew, sir, prophet, Messiah? See the growing appreciation? Then they went out of the city and came unto him. That's the men. And uh, then a little interruption with his chatting with his disciples, verse 39. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman which said, he told me all that ever I did. So this woman's testimony was fruitful in the salvation of the men of Sychar. And your testimony, your life, your love, your interest might well be influential in the winning of your friend to Christ. Finally, 
So when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them. And he abode there two days. Just a word of advice in passing. Always be careful about asking a preacher to stay with you. Because you might never get rid of him. Uh, the Lord said two days. And it seems to me that when the Lord's in something, two days is more than enough. He stayed two days. And what did he do in those two days? Well, this is what happened. And many more believed on him because of his own word. And they said, I think unkindly and ungenerously to the woman, they said, verse 42, now we believe not because of thy saying, but we have heard him ourselves. I say to you that your friend not only needs to hear your testimony, but they need to hear the Lord for themselves. That's how we could save, wasn't it? We heard him ourselves. Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and we know, we know, that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. You say, well, hang on, Samaritan man, just a minute. The Savior of the world, eh? So, you're telling me he can save Samaritans. Well, yes, he's just saved us, thank you very much, about which we are delighted. Now, your big enemies are the Jews. Do you think he can save Jews? Hmm, yeah, well, well, yes, because look at those fellows there with him. He saved them. What about the Romans, the pagans, the Greeks? Can he save them, do you think? I suppose they would have said, well, yes, come to think about it, he can. How come? Because he is the savior of the world. You're a Jew, and I don't like you. Sir, 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 you're a prophet. This is the Messiah. This is the savior of the world. Lord, lay one soul upon my heart and love that soul through me and may I nobly do my part and win that soul for thee. May God bless his word. Our Father, we thank thee in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for this beautiful story of John 4. We marvel at it. How the Lord Jesus Christ so tenderly approached this woman, spoke to her, revealed himself to her, and saved her by sovereign grace. We pray for the people whose names have been thought about in this place tonight. We pray that through thy grace thou wouldst help thy servants to win them for thee. So we lift our hearts to thee, we look to thee, ask thee to accept of our thanks for thy Son, our blessed and lovely Lord Jesus Christ. In his precious name, amen.